You guys ready for Revelation? Let's do that. Uh, we, we started last week, by the way, if you're like, okay, what's, what's up with Revelation? Well, if you're a visitor this morning, this is what we started last week. We're working through the entire book of Revelation. It is going to take a little while. It's a relatively long book, one of the longer, if not the longest book in the New Testament. And so we will break it up a little bit around Christmas time. We'll take a, a, a bit of a six, seven week interlude. And we have some other things that we're going to do around the, the turn of the new year. And, uh, but this, this is what we're going to be doing for a while. As I said, we did start last week, and I, I try not to make a habit out of plugging my own sermons, but in this particular case, it would probably be really helpful to listen to last week's sermon because we really laid the foundation for how we want to approach this amazing, wonderful, complex, sometimes historically divisive church or or book within the church and it's really important to me that that doesn't happen we want to work through this book in a way that the body of Christ is actually built up and that we don't begin to sort of uh, uh, section off in these little weird niche doctrinal uh, I don't know places in the room it's important that we approach this thing with great humility with hearts that are open and uh, an eagerness to actually learn together. I love uh, G.K. Chesterton. He said of Revelation, he said, St. John the Evangelist certainly saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw none so wild as one of his very own commentators. Meaning that Revelation's full of some pretty intense, interesting, bizarre stuff. But there's nothing quite as bizarre as some of the books and ideas that people have come up with regarding the meaning of these things contained in Revelation. So we want to be aware that there is some weirdness out there. And we want to study through this book, once again, with great humility, leaning utterly upon Jesus to help us. So on that note, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. And even as I take on the, the incredible honor and responsibility of teaching God's word, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see, and that you would emphasize the particular things that you want to say to us this morning. We are your people, and we're looking to you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, now would be the time to grab it, open it. You're very welcome to grab one of our NIV paperbacks out of one of the boxes in either one of the center aisles. Um, Otherwise, the words will be on the screen. And here we go. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. This is the second half of chapter 1. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me 
a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstand, lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we will pause there for this morning. Next week, we will launch in to the seven letters themselves. John begins by saying, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. I tried to emphasize this last week. I think it's worth re-emphasizing again. What what is the nature of this book, this letter, this text that we're reading nearly 2,000 years later? I think many of us, I'm guessing, might think of Revelation a bit like we think of um, Nostradamus. You guys know what I'm talking about? Seems like about every decade or so, you'll see the cover of Time magazine doing an article on Nostradamus, did the predictions come true? And I think we can, perhaps at some level, sort of categorize Revelation as that sort of Nostradamus-esque predictions of end time events. And to be sure, Absolutely, there is, there's an element, a large element of that. But at the outset, this is a letter being written by a man named John. And he's writing to brothers and sisters and partners in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. He's writing to fellow family members and co-laborers in the mission of God. That's, that's where this begins. 
he describes as um, he describes himself as a partner in the tribulation. Now, some of you, if you've ever skimmed through or actually even studied Revelation, you know that the tribulation, that's kind of a big thing. Um, When does it come? What is it? Did it already pass? Is it still to come? Pre-trib, post-trib, post-trib, a-trib, you know, that, that whole debate. And I'm not making light of it at all, but it is, this is one of the controversies. The tribulation, he's a partner in the tribulation. It's worth noting, before we even get into the seven letters, that there's only one church out of the seven that are actually suffering some kind of tribulation. It's, it's out of the seven churches, there's only two churches that Jesus actually has like positive things to say to. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. The church in Smyrna, the one that comes just after Ephesus, is the only church where Jesus talks specifically about the tribulation that they're currently suffering. So it's interesting that John would just assume that all of these churches whom Jesus wants him to write to are suffering some sort of tribulation or affliction. Flipsis is the, the Greek word there. Comes up quite a bit throughout Revelation and the rest of the New Testament. Philipsis. Only Smyrna is explicitly experiencing tribulation. Yet at the very outset, John says, I, your brother and partner in the tribulation. What is he talking about? What tribulation is he referring to? It's, um, it's also worth noting that the kingdom, he says that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that is in Jesus. He uses that sort of threefold thing there. The kingdom is right in the middle of the tribulation and the patient endurance. Something about this kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated, his kingdom, that's now beginning to unfold is embedded within affliction and endurance. And this seems to be uh, almost a given. Because tribulation is exactly what happens when kingdoms collide. The word kingdom there, now make, make no doubt about it, John is a poet. I mean, he's not wasting words. He's not like me, okay, like, like a normal preacher who just kind of just starts like using random words because they're slightly nervous and they want to they sound smart. Um, this is not what's happening here. John is using every single word very, very deliberately. This is our first sign that the book of Revelation, this letter that John is being given to write and send to the seven churches, it's what theologians called a theopolitical letter. Kingdom is political talk. 
Now, what's the kingdom that's currently reigning when this letter is being written? At this moment, when John is receiving this revelation, it's the Roman Empire. It's one of the greatest empires to ever rule the known world. And it's, a, it's an empire if there ever was one. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That is a political statement if there ever was one. And I know some of you are like, oh, what's, are we getting political now? I, can, I feel the anxiety in the room beginning to rise already. No, we're not going to get political. We're just going to be biblical. We're just going to be biblical. The kingdom is a highly political word. And what happens when kingdoms clash? Affliction, trial, sparks fly. We're talking about two opposing worlds clashing, coming together. Two alleged authorities claiming rightful ownership of the throne. Is it Caesar? Is it Nero? Is it Rome? Or is it King Jesus and the kingdom that he has come to establish. This is the big question. This is what will continue to build up throughout the book of Revelation. And it begins right here, this little word that he just inserts right in the middle of affliction and patient endurance. I, John, your brother and partner in the kingdom. And why, so let's, let's go back to affliction. Why is he suffering some sort of tribulation? Why, what, is, what, is, what is the problem? Now, there's some debate here, but if you read the commentaries and the history books, um, this, there's a general consensus that John is actually on this island from where he's writing Patmos. It's a little island, Aegean Sea, just off the coast of, of Greece. It's, it's not far from Ephesus. Historians, some historians say that, that Patmos in ancient times was actually where the Romans would send their exiled political prisoners. Kind of like, I don't know, not like Alcatraz necessarily, but it's this little island off the coast of this major port city where they would ship out people like John. Enemies of the state, political exiles. They said, go dump them on Patmos. Now, there's debate about that. But it would seem that 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 is the tribulation that he's talking about. In fact, he even says that I'm your brother and partner in tribulation of the kingdom and patient endurance. And I'm writing to you on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is he on Patmos? Why is he suffering affliction? Well, it's because he was being faithful to spread the word about Jesus, about his kingdom, who he is, what he has done, and his rightful authority and rule that's now spreading across the globe. That's not the kind of thing Rome is going to tolerate. Not into it. So it's very likely that he was shipped off. And now he's riding from this rock called Patmos. He's alone. I think that's arguably, anyways, the affliction that he's suffering. And it makes sense. It makes sense. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, this could very well have been John writing again another letter. That's a massive debate. But Jesus said, according to John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, philipsis, or affliction. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How do you feel about tribulation 
in your life? Is anyone suffering affliction right now? Something you would say, absolutely, I know affliction. Don't raise your hand. Unless you want us to pray for you. Maybe we'll do that in a minute. How do you feel about suffering as a natural part of being a member of God's family and a partner in his kingdom mission. You know, I was at a, um, a, an event yesterday with a few of you here, uh, Pete Grieg, who is one of my all-time favorite authors. He writes on prayer. Um, he was at an event here in London, or he's from London. He was at an event here in Portland yesterday. And he made the point that the majority of our psalms, in fact, it's 70% if you look it up, nearly 70% of the psalms in our Bible are laments. They're songs of pain. They're songs or poems of people pouring their heart out to God in affliction. You know how many percent of the songs that we sing. So CCLI is sort of like the, the governing board that oversees all of the Christian songs that we, we play and sing on a Sunday and there's, there's fees attached to that, rightly so. And out of the top 100, I'm getting hits, like shaking. Out of the top 150 songs that churches in the United States sing on a Sunday morning, do you know how many of those are laments? Zero percent. Zero percent. That's slightly problematic. Because when John begins his letter, he writes it as like, this is a given. I am your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. We're together in this. Obviously, kingdoms are clashing. There is a conflict. There is a problem. There is affliction. And we all get it and we're all in it together. How are you suffering for Jesus today? And how do you feel about that? Are you at all? I would argue that our tribulation is the lack of tribulation. Now, please hear me right. If you're sitting here and you're like, how dare you? You have no idea how I've suffered or how I'm suffering right now. And please don't hear me right. I'm, I'm not trying to marginalize or make just some gross generalization about where everyone's at in the room. I am speaking generally. But like us as a church, us as a Western people, people who never actually sing the songs that God himself has given us because we are supposed to be familiar with suffering in this world just as Jesus promised but we're to suffer with hope. We're to suffer like Jesus suffered. In fact, we're invited to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. And I think we struggle with that because there's something about our, I don't know, postmodern enlightened experience of faith and, and, and Jesus and Christianity that simply doesn't want to talk about that. And I get it because who wants to talk about it? I would rather you tell me about how God's just going to bless me and make my life easy and better and just give me everything I want and fulfill every desire that's in my heart because that's, that's how it works. And that's what I, I, I swore I heard that on a podcast one time. 
And God does want to bless us. And God does want to comfort us. And God does want to strengthen us. And God calls us to overcome because he has overcome this world. But it's all in the context of us suffering like he suffered to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. And this is not unique to the Christian experience. This is called living on planet Earth. This is, this is just called being alive. The world we live in, um, it's broken. It's broken. Pain is part of the human experience. As a follower of Jesus, the one thing, if, there, if, if I could whittle it down to a single thing that, that does make me different, I'm better, but different is that I am able to suffer with an unshakable hope in my king. Our tribulation today is the utter lack of tribulation. Our affliction is our constant drive to acquire comfort and to acquiesce in the empire of self-absorption. What does John do with that? How, how does one like step out of that world? Now, some of you are like, I get that. I've heard that before. Okay, great. How do we do it? How do, we, how do we follow Jesus and participate in the fellowship of his suffering with hope in a way that actually exemplifies the kingdom that belongs to him, that he's called us to partner in? How did John suffer well? Well, it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? I was in the spirit. That sounds very spiritual. I imagine John sitting on a rock, seated yoga pose, (laughs) uh, legs crossed, crisscrossed, Jesus sauce, and and, you know, you kind of have this, I have this picture in my mind of like this very, very mystical sort of, and maybe, maybe, and hey, if if that's how you get with Jesus and be in the spirit, awesome, like, dude. That's, that's so, so cool, but maybe not necessarily that. What does it mean to be in the spirit? Honestly, I'm, I'm putting the question out there for us to think about. John was in the spirit, exiled on Patmos, living on a rock, maybe like wondering if he's gonna even survive another day. And on the Lord's day, he goes to church. Okay, he didn't go to church. But he was in the spirit. I would say this, whatever it looks like, whatever sort of pose, some of you, I know you like being in the spirit uh, with the covers pulled up. Whatever works for you. And then you slip deep into the spirit, into the subconscious state. And then you, then you wake up and you start talking about visions that you had. <laughs> no, no, you just fell asleep. <laughs> Whatever it looks like for you, I would say this. John says in verse 7, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. One of the first indications that you're actually connecting with the spirit of God 
is that you're listening. You're listening. You're quieting yourself. You're being still before the Lord. You're waiting. And you're attentively listening. Isn't listening super hard? And if you say no, it's easy. Hmm. Have you been married? (laughs) Do you know how like actually hard it is to listen? (laughs) Okay. Just do an assessment of your relationships. Listening is hard. Especially, especially, and I I, I hate to, to rant about our day and age, but it is especially hard in our day and age where the distractions are constant. Constant. I mean, never mind the fact that we live in a wonderful city full of cars and, 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 and visual stimuli and all these other things. But I mean, the, 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 the head, the, the, the earplugs, the, whatever you call them, the, the screens, the, the technology, the digital frenzy that is our daily existence, it makes it very hard. One kind of wishes, man, I wish I could get exiled for like a day. A day, just go sit on a rock, do some yoga, and be in the spirit. That would be amazing. Sorry, if, if yoga weirds you out, I'm, I'm joking, all right? I'm joking. <laughs> Whatever. He was listening. And he didn't hear a whisper. This is what gets me. I often think that Jesus is going to be like, Just this very sort of ethereal kind of like whisper. Now you think, yeah, but what about Elijah? Someplace like 1 Kings 18 or someplace around there, Elijah heard the still small small whisper. Yes, true. But it's also interesting that Elijah, we're talking about the Old Testament prophet that called down fire. I mean, this guy, I mean, he saw, it was like everything that he knew of God, all of his interactions with God were spectacular. And God had to take him in a cave and be like, look, you need to understand, like, it's not all fireworks and, and like, rah, rah, rah. And Elijah needed to listen to God in that way. I would argue that most of us probably have the opposite problem. Like, even if God is whispering to my heart, I've got way too much going on to even hear him. And so there John is sitting on this rock, and he hears Jesus loud and clear. John! I imagine John's like, holy God! And Jesus is like, true, yes. Well said, well said. And he, he hears the voice behind him. Makes you wonder, like, was Jesus having a bit of a laugh? Like... <laughs> out on this island in the middle of nowhere. Done! (laughs) Sorry, probably not. I like to imagine. And I heard behind me the loud voice like a trumpet. And it says, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. So he heard, and then he turned and he saw he was perceiving something. Isn't that, isn't that, I love that. He was in the spirit, so he wasn't just like monologuing to Jesus. 
He was listening and he was seeing. He was actually receiving something from Jesus while he was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. It's wonderful. It says so much about how we we pray. He turns and he sees Jesus, but notice Jesus wasn't alone. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking and I saw, what did he see first? Not Jesus, but the seven golden lampstands. Now, of course, the lampstands would have been, these are, we're in like apocalyptic symbolism here. Those are the, that would be the lampstand sitting in the temple that John would have been familiar with as a first century Jew. But here, the lampstands, the seven, represent the seven churches that he's about to send these letters to. Now, you could say, oh, but the number seven, is he talking about like the complete church? Possibly, possibly. Perhaps this is his way of saying that Jesus is commanding me to send a letter to seven specific churches, but in a way, at the same time, it's not just for those seven ancient churches, it is for the entire church. Because remember, seven means complete, it means entire. It means whole. Send these letters, or this one circular letter to these seven churches, but know that it's for the whole church for all of time, which is why we're reading it today. So he turns and he sees the seven, he sees the churches first, and then he sees Jesus in their midst. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like the Son of Man. This is an explicit reference to Daniel 7, where Daniel sees in a vision the ancient of days, one who looks like a son of man. And it says that he had a white robe with a golden sash that speaks of uh, Jesus, the priestly king or the royal priest. He had white hair like wool or snow. He is the wise one, the all-knowing. Eyes full of fire. His perception is unobscured. He sees with purity. He can see straight into our hearts. It says that his feet were like burnished bronze. His foundation is sure. His voice, like the roar of many waters, he speaks with supreme authority. He cannot be silenced. The seven stars in his right hand, Jesus goes on to explain these seven stars. They represent the seven angels or messengers. Bit of debate about what those actually are. When he says the seven stars represent the seven angels. Angels is also translated as messengers. It could be that each one of the seven churches had a messenger or maybe someone overseeing that church. Or it could very well have just meant that, no, they are the seven angels or the entire angelic army in heaven, all within the right hand of the king, meaning that he exercises all power in the universe. He commands the angelic army, the entire army. He is the powerful one. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Truth is his weapon of choice. I'm going to say a lot more about that. And finally, his face shone like the full strength of the sun. His face, that's, that's his essence. That's who he is. When you look into the face of God, you're looking at God himself. It's like looking at someone in the eyes. When you make that sort of contact, you see them. And it's described as the full strength 
of the sun. Looking into the face of God would be like staring directly into the sun from like this close. He is powerful. He is powerful, which is why when John turns and sees this revelation, this revealing of King Jesus, he falls flat on his face like I'm going to pass out. He is utterly overwhelmed with the majesty of King Jesus. I love that. In the midst of affliction and patient endurance, if you're in the family of God, if you're a partner in the king's mission, you will absolutely guaranteed find yourself in between affliction and patient endurance. Because that's what happens when kingdoms clash. What do we need in that moment? What does Jesus give John in his affliction on Patmos? He gives our brother a revelation of who he really is. You know what I think? In our affliction, or when you will be in affliction, you know what we need more than anything else? Is a bigger view of our God. We need a bigger view of our God. I hope this feels a little challenging because I suspect that a lot of us, we've been, we've been sold downgraded versions of King Jesus. We've been told that Jesus is, he's, he's, your, he's a really good therapist. When you're feeling down, he'll come alongside of you and be like, hey buddy, it's okay. <laughs> that would actually be a really bad therapist. Um, <laughs> but he's sort of your comfort blanket. We've been told that he's merely uh, a good teacher. Because you know what we all need when like, your life is falling apart is more like, uh, well, here's what you should have done or here's what you could do better because that's super helpful, right? I know what I did wrong. I don't need to be explained it. What I need is, I need something more. Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the therapist. What about Jesus, the social worker? I just need someone to come along and like, help me fill out the paperwork of life so that I can actually like, get my bills paid. Jesus is all of these things. He is my comforter. He is my teacher. He is my helper. But Jesus is so much more than that. What about Jesus the shepherd? I think that one's a little bit closer to the mark. Jesus the shepherd. Jesus the one who walks among his people. Who's there in the midst of his sheep. He's the gentle one who picks up the weak, the child, the innocent, the hurting, the broken, and he carries us. He heals us. He helps us while we mend. But he is also the one who carries the big stick, the shepherd's staff, so that when the wolf comes along and tries to pick off the weak or the broken, the downcast, he uses that thing and he cracks heads wide open. That is King Jesus in might. He deals with evil in the world. In the midst of our affliction, we need comfort. We need wisdom. We need help. But more than anything else, we need a bigger view of who our king really is. King Jesus, 
in awe. This is what he gives John. He's the greater one. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, he says, little children, take heart. Because greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. The greater one lives inside of you. How great is your vision of King Jesus? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades or hell, if you will. He is the greater one standing in the midst of his people. In the middle of the seven lampstands, he has the first word and the last. He has overcome this world and he now holds the keys to death and hell. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. What do we need to know? What's the big takeaway? And we need to wrap up. So I'm going to just stop. But here's where I want to land. Here's where I want to land. Can I invite the worship team to come up, please? Number one, we need to be a people who are comfortable with participating in the fellowship of Jesus' suffering. You've been lied to if someone has tried to convince you that following Jesus is just some sort of ticket out of hardship or suffering or affliction or tribulation. It's not. You might say, but I thought Jesus suffered for me so that I don't have to suffer. False. Jesus died for me so that I can die to self like him. Jesus suffered for me so that I can suffer in hope like him. Jesus suffered for my sins so that I can suffer for righteousness sake. So that I can suffer not because of my own sinfulness and rebellion, but because the righteous one has set me free and is teaching me to lay my life down for the sake of others, to take up my cross and to suffer like him for the sake of the world, that I might be on mission with my king, that I might be a partner in his kingdom, that I might live in between affliction and patient endurance, knowing that my king is the greater one. And when I'm suffering, when I'm in the spirit and listening, looking to him, my king is great. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all enduring. He is all faithful. He is the mighty king Jesus. This is where revelation begins. And it only just takes off from here. This is the king revealed. Can we stand together, please? listening to Grace City Portland.